Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Welcome back to The Everyday Novelist. I am J. Daniel Sawyer. And I am Kitty Nikian. So it has, as you may have gathered from some of the uh, comments that I've stuck at the beginning of those Nanogang episodes, and from some of the comments in the episodes, it's been a really interesting couple of months up here on the homestead. And uh, we've had the occasion to think quite a lot about the kinds of things that city slickers, which we used to be, are unlikely to think about when they're writing novels set in a rural-type setting. Whether that's a modern rural setting or a long-time-ago rural setting. I, I actually think people have a better idea of writing the long-time-ago because they assume... Uh, lack of a lot of things. Probably so, but even so, I've read a few read some long time ago that take certain things for granted that you just can't. Mm-hmm. So, um like supply lines. Yeah. So we thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about how this works. This was occasioned by some neighbors of ours who are doing the same thing we are, but didn't have the benefit that we did of being stuck for a couple of years next door to some people who had homesteaded a place from scratch. And I basically, well, we both annoyed the hell out of them by basically following them around for two years and asking all the stupid questions, Mm -hmm. which has saved our ass. Plus, they gave us a lot of really great free books. Mm. And some of their cast-off tools, which have also (laughs) saved Yes. Oh, man, oh, man. So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about. It seems like a truism to say that things work differently out here. Oh, yes. But until you've been there, the ways that it works differently are not all immediately obvious. Oh, let's... What? Where should we start? Should we start with uh, order of ops? Should we start with priority setting? What do you mean by order of ops? Well, like, for example... Well, I guess now we're starting with order of ops. So, like, for example, when we got here to this place in April, there was nothing. I mean, I got here the year before and was able to do a couple of weeks of work, but almost none of it wound up being work that stuck. The one exception was that I dug holes for the footings for the temporary shop. What we had to do was we had to figure out the order in which to do things so that we weren't duplicating work. One of the things that happens when you get out away from places where you can solve all your problems with money. You can't solve all your problems with money if one of three things is going on. If you're poor, if you're away from the supply lines, or if you're doing things that most people don't do. Um, The third is maybe the least obvious, but... If you're doing things that most people don't do, the market for the tools and the technological solutions that might make your life easier is very small. So finding people that supply those things is difficult, and figuring out what those things are that you need to be looking for is also difficult. So even when they exist, you're not always going to find them by the time you need them. Yes. The 
thing about being poor is also obvious. That's something that people in the city run into. If you don't have enough money to buy the off-the-shelf solution, then you don't have enough money to buy the off-the-shelf solution. But the difference is, in the city, there are a lot more thrift stores, and there's a much bigger market for used stuff that is basically almost new, because what happens with a lot of city folk, say you wanted to um, remodel your house, you might buy a whole bunch of tools for the job, because if it's a big enough job, you can't rent them without it being more expensive than buying them, uh, because of the amount of time you need the tools for. So you may go like to Home Depot or something and buy a shitload of tools that you're going to need for this job, and then when you get done with them, you may never need most of those tools again. And so what do they do? They go up on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or, or FreeCycle or whatever. Mm-hmm. A clever poor person in the city, as long as they've got access to the internet, a cell phone, and a car, can get amazing amounts of material wealth for free or nearly free just by picking up other people's trash. Because in the city, when you're close to supply lines and there's a lot of extra cash running around, other people's trash isn't trash. It's just stuff they don't have a use for anymore. This is true for everything from furniture to power tools. And and this isn't to say that there isn't a second-hand market out in the country. There definitely is. There definitely is. God for that. And there's a lot of secondhand stuff available here that you would not find in the city at all because nobody uses a pitchfork, so why would you have a secondhand pitchfork? Right, which is why a lot of people make bank who live in the country selling things like barn wood and barn finds. It's other people's cast-off junk that they maybe put a fresh coat of paint on or sand it down and they sell it on because it's got novelty value in the city. Right, but out here in the country... The amount of driving to get the oh, same amount God. of, yep. or to access the secondhand market is astonishing. It is astonishing. And just in just going around to the area that is technically the same zip code as we are, <laughs> which which is. Our zip code is 200 miles one way and 80 miles the other way. Right, because it, it, it's like a small. It includes a small town and about half of the county. Oh, there's a post office up in the other town? Yeah, there's a post office in in the other... In, in not, the town up on the border? Yeah, it's it's almost not a town. It, it, it is it's, a, po- it's technically a ghost town, actually. They sold the town to one guy a while ago. Yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's a post office and a general store mm-hmm. and a few houses, but I'm And pretty, a junkyard. That junkyard is amazing. Yeah. So um, you can do a lot of driving going to places that Craigslist insists isn't... In your area. area. Yeah. Yeah. And in our area is like this 80-mile radius. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's kind of crazy. Yeah, if you constrain it to 20 miles, you find nothing. Mm, Yeah. So there's the availability of stuff, and we'll get into that a little bit later about how you actually get stuff with that going on. But at the bottom of it all is order of operations, and some of that has to do with equipment selection, and I'm not sure which we should tackle first, and this should probably be two episodes, one of which we talk about finding stuff and equipment okay. selection, and one of which we talk about order of ops, because I think that would that would split well. Okay. We so, technically kind of started at order of ops, but we've been talking about finding stuff. All right, so, so let's finish finding stuff, and then we'll do another episode on order of ops. Okay. So, finding stuff. One of the things that you generally do in the city is that you buy or you try to get the latest version of everything that you can afford. Because if it's newer, 
You're gonna, if it goes wrong, you're gonna have more parts available. The mechanics are gonna be more comfortable working on it because, I mean, if nothing else, you've got auto dealerships for that kind of thing around, or, um, or tractor dealerships if you're in a place that's on the edge of rural land. But when you're out in the actual boonies, things get a little different. You don't actually want the newest version of things most of the time, and there's a few reasons for that. The first is that this is the end of the supply chain. So anytime there is a supply chain interruption, not just a supply chain interruption caused by, say, for example, a war or a trade war or a pandemic, but a supply chain interruption can be caused by things like the cost of diesel goes up by 20 cents a gallon. Now, when you're in the city, this isn't a big deal because stuff comes in on ship and by rail. And so it's not the last mile where stuff gets loaded onto trucks, and it's actually not the last mile, it's usually the last 50 or 60 miles, where things get loaded onto trucks and pushed to your place is this teeny part of the shipping cost. And it's usually handled by large companies, large logistics firms that do that kind of shipping. When you get out in the boonies... The people that bring you your food, your parts, your tools, your supplies, are independent operators who, are, who own their trucks and are paying for the gas. And if the fuel prices get too expensive, they literally pull off to the side of the road and wait for the, wait for the fuel prices to drop. Or they dump whatever their current load is and they go home and they take a little vacation until the fuel prices drop or the shipping prices go up. Right. And when, when we talk about... Um big companies versus uh, independent operators. We're not just talking about the truckers and whatnot. Well, I was, but go ahead, because Um, you're right. But um, it's like an hour and a half to the nearest Safeway or the nearest Walmart Mm -hmm. or the Home Depot. So So it also affects your ability to go to the place where the trucks drop things off. Right. And places like Safeway and Walmart and Home Depot have their own trucking system. Mm-hmm. They have their own shipping department that moves stuff from warehouses in their biggest city to the s- stores in their smaller towns. Mm-hmm. So prices are higher, but on those big box stores, as long as their supply chain's intact, they're fine. Mm-hmm. But the small stores that are in the small towns, they're serviced by independent operators. In our town, there we don't have a big box store of any kind for, what, 60 miles in any direction? Yes, yes. And so everything that comes in here, including the fuel, even though, we ha- even though the fuel stations are corporate franchises, everything including the fuel comes in by independently operated tractor-trailer. So... If it's, uh, if the fuel prices are too high, the gas stations actually can run dry around here because the fuel costs too much to bring in to refill the fuel stations. Fortunately, that hasn't happened while we've been One here. of the fuel stations went dry when we were in the other town last winter. Oh. Yeah. So it has happened. Um, so that can happen. And uh, you got to be aware that you base So because your life is so much more prone to interruption, you can't depend on everything is readily available. You have to assume 
that at any given time, your ability to get what you want is going to be delayed by up to a month. Right. It doesn't happen all the time. Even in times like this, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And if it catches you with your pants down, then the guy that's about to bend you over isn't wielding the normal equipment. He's wielding a chainsaw. <laughs> and, and chainsaws and don't aren't susceptible to lube, really. So <laughs> it can be painful. And you have to buy special lube for the winter. <laughs> well, that's that's for your chainsaw bar and chain oil. That's a whole different thing. In terms of being prepared for supply chain interruptions, people in rural parts... Who don't want to die. We tend to have a month or two months of toilet paper on a normal basis. Toilet paper, food, fuel. And, and not just go crazy buying toilet paper when the mega flu hits. Yeah, the kind of stuff that the rest of you were doing in a panic at the beginning of the pandemic, we were doing as normal course of business already. Yeah. So when the pandemic hit and all the supply chains went, <clears throat> I went down to the basement at the place we were staying and did an inventory and realized that we were okay for six months. Yeah. <laughs> Except for paper towels. And so I went out and got paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> So which is which is great because that was like the one paper product that nobody was um, panic buying. Right. It was like toilet paper and Kleenex. Yep. But which when, makes yep. sense. When those supply chain interruptions happen on anything but fuel, you're left and even sometimes on fuel, what you're left with is the stuff that's produced locally. So around where we live, you're never going to run out of meat, and I think that's it. Uh, every everything else is seasonal. If it's the summer, you're not going to run out of apples or a lot of other vegetables because there's a lot of ag around here. But in the winter, ha ha ha, you're going to run out of everything. Yeah. And it's not uncommon you know, to go to the store one week, and everything is bursting off the shelves, and then the next week, half the shelves are empty. Um, <laughs> and you just get used to that being the way things are. But because of that, you also generally don't want the latest and greatest of everything. You want the older stuff that's a little more user serviceable. If the transfer case on your four-wheel drive truck goes out, you don't want something that's built in the last five or six years because you're going to have to take it to a dealership to have the work done. Or if you don't, you're going to have to call the manufacturer and get a new part. You get something that's eight or nine years old, and even if... Or 20. Or, or tw well, we, yeah, we tend to do 20 and 30. But even eight or nine years old, there's enough of the vehicle that you're driving or the tractor that you're using that have gone into junkyards that you can go into junkyards and pull parts off. Although places like Pick Apart and um, junkyards that, that service particularly car parts are fewer and they're fewer and further between so one of the things it behooves you to do is to go to those junkyards and find out what kind of stuff they keep around mm -hmm. and then you buy something that's compatible with what's on the lot and it's not uncommon here particularly with vehicles for people to have a parts vehicle yeah um a, an almost dead ford pickup that they keep on their lot just for they just to the, cannibal. They, they blew the engine or the transmission so they keep everything else around and it gradually cannibalizes and then when it gets down to a frame then they either sell it for scrap metal or the scrap metal goes into their junk pile. Which is the other thing. You live out in parts rural and this is true in any era, um, but especially since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. You keep a junk pile. Oh, yeah. Um, and because it's parts for everything. And even if it's not ready-made parts, you have a shop. You keep a shop. You keep tools so that if, for example, 
as happened at the place we were staying on the East Coast, the neighbor's plow truck breaks. The, he broke the frame on his plow truck. And it was fix the plow truck frame or we're snowed in for the winter. Right. And so what did we do? I went over to his uh, to his auto shop and we put it up on his lift. Thank f- he had a lift. Otherwise, we would have been jacking the thing up and rolling around on the ground. And we found the place where the frame was broken. And we sanded it down. We ground it down and we welded it together. And then we went out to his junk pile and we found, uh, it was, I think it was an old Toyota frame. A, th- this thing was a big Dodge truck, but he had this old Toyota pickup frame that had really good thick metal on it. And we cut pieces of that metal off and then we sandwiched the broken part and then we welded that on so it was an extra brace. And then I went into the blacksmith shop and I hammered out a steering brace to connect the place where it broke, which was by the steering box because of all the weight, and braced the frame triangularly so it would be extra strong. That thing's not going to break for another 20 or 30 years, which is about the amount of time that it took this plow truck to break. Within two days, he was back on the road plowing. And it was brilliant. That's not the kind of thing you do in the city. You do that in the city, you have the, uh, you have the tow truck take it to the shop, and the shop uh, either fixes it or they tell you, ah, it's going to be too expensive to fix, you need to buy a new truck. And then sometimes you have to sweet-talk them into it because you can't afford a new truck, even if it's uh, technically cheaper than what uh, the labor might be. And sometimes they won't do that kind of work. And sometimes they won't do that kind of work, in which case you have to go find a specialist. You have to go to a welder or something. But out here, if you don't know how to use hand tools, power tools, a welder, uh, you're at the mercy of the environment. And we've seen, um, like I said, we've got some neighbors who moved up here doing basically the same thing we are. And uh, they were less um, savvy about their equipment selection. For no reason other than they didn't have two or three years following homesteaders around and finding out what works. They did what any sensible city person would do. They bought two vehicles that were pretty expensive and pretty new on the theory that these won't break. And if they had been in the city, they would not have broken. But out here in the country, you're using all those features that you don't use much. You're actually using the towing capacity. You're actually using the cargo capacity because you're making runs of equipment and um, materials and whatnot to build whatever you're building. You're actually putting stress on the system. And, of course, in the snow or in the mud, which there's a lot of both of those around here, about six months of the year, either snow or mud. Well, there's also dust season. Well, yeah. Which has its own problems. Six months of the year is snow and mud, so you're using the four-wheel drive all the time. So you have to maintain parts of the vehicle that you never have to maintain in the city. Mm-hmm. In the city, you never have to change the front diff fluid on your four-wheel drive vehicle because you never use the front axle, unless it's an all-time four-wheel drive, but that's a separate issue. But in the country, you have to change that diff fluid every six months or you are going to have a blown front end and you're not going to have a four-wheel drive vehicle anymore, and you're not going to be able to get through the snow or the mud. As, as a quick aside, there's, there's a reason that there is the, um, the stereotype of the redneck with a bunch of junk in their yard. Yep. It's not junk. It's, it's your resource pile. And what can you do with that resource? It's not just parts for cars. You can. Of course, you can fix your cars. You can even pull body panels off of an old car or off of a 
washing machine. I did this when I was restoring the truck. The truck I bought had no floor because it was New England and the floor had rotted out from all the salt on the road. So I took washing machine uh, surrounds and fabricated a new floor and welded it in. You can do that with some basic hand tools once you learn how. Um, and a welder, of course. Yeah. But you're also talking, there's things you can't really repurpose very reliably from an old car that are really good for other things. Like, for example, if you have old leaf springs, you generally don't want to reuse them because they get cracked, they get stressed. You put them on a, you take old leaf springs and put them on a new vehicle at, or on a vehicle that's in service and seeing heavy use, and they're going to fail again in a year. But you can take those old leaf springs and make them into knives. You can make them into structural elements of other machines. If you, if you watch Forged and Fire, uh -huh. you know this part already. If you got a little blacksmith shop and it doesn't take much to set one up, you can make metal into anything. Which is really handy because sometimes you need things, especially if you're using older uh -huh. vehicles or older tractors, sometimes you need things that aren't made anymore. And you actually do have to fabricate them yourself. You also see this on shows like uh, Gold Rush or any of those like out in the bush in Alaska shows where they have to fix equipment that was custom built or they have to fix trucks and they're 400 miles from the nearest dealership or or tractors or or excavators and they do what's called bush fixes. They figure out how to take stuff that was never meant to do this and make it do the job. And a really good bush mechanic can make a better part than you can get from the factory in terms of its durability. It often looks like shit, but when you're worried about functionality, looks are the last thing on your mind. So anyway, our friends wound up, both of their almost new vehicles have become completely dead. Uh, they're both in the shop. They will be for weeks, which is a problem because they live 15 miles out of town up on a road that isn't being plowed, and they don't have grid power, and they don't have a well. So all of their fuel, and they don't have a wood stove, so all of their fuel, all of their heat, all their electricity has to come in overland from the gas station and uh, from the, you know, and the water has to come in in tanks and they can't haul it uphill. And they're, I'm a little worried that they're going to die. We've bailed them out a few times. I don't think they'll have this problem next year because they've been doing now what we were able to do in the last few years, which is following around people who have done this before and asking them questions. But the logic of the city does not work in the country because you're operating under an entirely different set of constraints. You also need a lot more tools. Yes. So it behooves you to spend as little as possible on each particular tool. As long as you get ones that'll last. As long as you get, get ones that will last. So it makes sense to get a used vehicle, get your tools on the used market if you can, haunt estate sales, haunt places like Harbor Freight sales, mm -hmm. since they have like some of the cheapest crap it's not crap anymore. It lasts pretty well. Yeah, it, it does. and But it's like their own brand made for them yep. particularly and tends to be about the cheapest stuff you can buy new, new on the market. Oh, what other what other things about equipment acquisition? Uh, you can you can do great things by buying uh, buying say old trailers that have 
problems that people haven't wanted to fix because trailers are very easy to fix. If you've got an angle grinder and a welder, you can fix anything that's made of metal and doesn't require machining, even though sometimes it takes a bit of time. Anything you can learn to fix is a value add and saves you money in the long run. In the long run. And of course, the second tier consideration is balancing time versus money. Yeah. And... In the city, that's a really easy equation. Time always wins because you've got so much competing for your attention. Out here, it's a little more iffy. And, and, and things can go weird. Like, so for example, a mistake we made is that we bought and we were able to get a really good price on a nine foot snowplow. Big, bloody snowplow. We got a truck to drive it that could basically go through anything that was. But we bought it. We, we, we bought this before. We came out here, and before we saw our road. And what we didn't reckon on, and what we couldn't tell from the satellite pictures, and what we didn't know to ask our friends that came to inspect the place, was that there are several places on our easement road that are eight feet wide, and eight feet wide and bounded by heavy berms. So the plow literally will not fit through unless we bring an excavator in to widen the road. So we can't use the plow that we bought. So we're going to have to sell it and get another solution. Uh, probably a tractor, because a tractor will be much more versatile for that kind of thing here. Uh, we'll sell it to someone who lives on a wider road and desperately needs a good plow. And, you know, it'll work out okay. But one of the things about a tractor, using a tractor in the snow or the mud, is you got to have tire chains or that thing's going to get stuck. And tractor tire chains cost about a grand... They're not cheap, unless unless you, you know, know how to how weld. To weld, if you know how to weld, you can make tractor tire chains for about fifty bucks for the set by buying a big bloody fifty or well, with inflation, it's probably gonna be seventy-five or hundred bucks now. Buy a big bloody reel of chain from Home Depot or wherever you can get it. In our case, Home Depot is about a three-hour drive, so we go there twice a year. Um, and then you actually fabricate your tire chains yourself. And uh, this can work with anything. And tire chains are really pricey, so, you know, it's not a bad set of skills to have. But that job will cost two days. One day to get the chains, uh, maybe three days. One day to get the chains, and then one or two days to fabricate the chains to fit the tractor. That means that's two or three days that we don't get to do anything else around here. In the case of something like tractor chains, with how much they cost and what new capabilities they give us, that's worth it. If we were talking about tire chains for the car, I mean, those are a lot cheaper, and we actually just wound up buying those. So these are the kinds of decisions you have to make. And Speaking of tire chains, with um, car chains, you take them on and off yep. frequently. Like, we only put the chains on the car to get up a particular part of our easement. And only when the snow is more than four inches deep. So they have to be made in order to come on and off fairly easily. Right. Not true with tractor chains. You can leave them on year-round. Exactly. So it's a lot easier to fabricate the tire chains for the tractor than it is to fabricate them for a car because you have moving parts on the car chain that you don't have to deal with on a tractor chain. Yeah, and you can fabricate those moving parts. It's just more of a pain, and you have to be a better metal worker to do that. So you you have to pay attention to your climate. Uh, this is something that our, that our friends on that road 
are having trouble with. And also uh, another set of friends um, up in another town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. The number of people around here that, and mostly all of them are, are new transplants, that don't have adequate snow tires or chains mm-hmm. for driving in winter climates. And yeah, from about mid-December to mid-February reliably and a little bit on either side, depending on the season, but guaranteed middle of December to the middle of February, you can't get anywhere without snow tires or chains. And a lot of people just... The first year, sometimes the first two years, they don't do it because uh, it's a lot of expense. It, yeah, it costs money to get a whole new set of, of tires. But not as much as it costs to be able to not go to work for a week, for example. So... That's, yeah, that's an important thing. Our friends up on the hill, they, because they hadn't done this before, and because they hadn't hung around with people who had, and because the sum total of their knowledge came from YouTube, which, though it is a fantastic resource, most popular channels on any subject tend to edit for entertainment value rather than for instructional value. Mm -hmm. So you don't really see the whole decision tree. So our friends that we were talking about that are having a really hard time they looked at what was going on. They said, okay, we've done a lot of camping. This is basically an extended camping trip. And so things like, well, we need a shelter for our storage. We need to be able to heat our place when we can't get into town. We need to be able to eat when we can't get into town. These things didn't occur to them because when you go camping, of course, you're in a controlled environment. You're near the road. And the extra levels of complication that gets added onto your life when you move away from the road, when you're not in a controlled environment, when you're in a climate that's really brutal, they don't occur to you because you don't know to ask the questions. And extended camping trip, even if, if you do some like really deep in the woods camping, unless you're doing a, a, like the whole of the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, mm-hmm extending a camping trip to a life you you can't actually fathom it um and things like uh well when we go camping we have our generator well that's great but if you're running that generator 24 7 those little generators are not designed for that and even if you're perfect on maintenance they will break so you have to think about things like where are you going to get your electricity from if your generator breaks? Do you have a backup generator? Do you have another way of doing things? One of the things that we learned in our boot camp phase that we've done here is everything, everything we've got except our primary living space is redundant. We've got backups for everything. We have a stack of extra solar panels that aren't deployed yet. We've got more batteries than we technically need. We've got, I've got doubles of almost every tool in my shop. We've got doubles of every hand tool. We've got more than one axe. We've got more than one snow shovel. We've got more than one shovel. We've got more than one pickaxe. We've got more than one chainsaw. And that's because things break. Even the hand tools break. I just replaced three axe handles in the last month. And even the things that we don't have duplicates of, we have tools that can be used for more than one purpose. Right. So there was a couple of times in the summer when you were working on projects where you didn't have enough power. Mm -hmm. This was actually before we set up the solar, so we didn't have electricity 
of any kind here. So you didn't have access to your chop saw or your table saw, but you did have multiple kinds of hand saws. Mm -hmm. and As well as two generators. That worked for your purposes. Yep. And you were able to do the joinery on this on the porch that we're sitting in using hand tools. Even our sawmill. We've got a sawmill for milling down boards, and I've built quite a lot of stuff out of that. We've got a chainsaw mill, which I haven't used yet, but if that sawmill ever goes out in the middle of a project, I've got two chainsaws and a chainsaw mill, so I can continue to do the lumber I need while we're waiting for a new engine or new saw blades or something like that. The basic philosophy that you have to work on, and this is true whether you're on a farm or whether you're homesteading or whether you just live out away from supply lines, the basic philosophy you have to work on is something that in geopolitics is called defense in depth. You have to have multiple redundancies and multiple failure points for everything so that the vicissitudes of the world never get to the point where they're threatening your life. Because if you've got a single point of failure, that point will fail and then you're screwed. And some of those defenses are practical and involve equipment, and some of them involve social networking. You build up goodwill with your neighbors. You trade favors so that if you're ever stuck and there's a medical emergency, you can get out. All of these things are important, and it's something that writers who live and have always lived in the city often don't think about because you live in a just-in-time world. Everything's available almost all the time for the right price. And if it's not available for the right price, you can probably find someone who will lend it to you, someone who will rent it to you. And if worse comes to worse, you've got public services you can fall back on for food, emergency medical care, emergency medical transport, and that kind of thing. None of that exists out here. Out here, you're on your own. I'm, I'm pretty certain that an ambulance could never get up our hill. No, an ambulance, not even in the summer, could an ambulance get up our hill. Which uh, brings, you were talking about dust season. So we've got half the year is snow and mud. And the other half is dust. Dust does fun things to engines. You actually have to change your air filter twice a year here. And both times in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> because the dust that you kick up on dirt roads, not to mention the smoke that gets cl that gets into your air filter during fire season. Oh boy, do they clog it, it actually makes sense around here to pay extra for the air filters that you can wash. Yep. Or to carry an extra one with you all the time. When I came up here with a friend of ours to scout properties before we moved up here, because he was looking to buy a place, we drove up here from Oregon. We drove around, and on the way back to Oregon, the car died. Brand new car. It died because the dust and the smoke, because it was fire season, had clogged the air filter. Mm. And we had to basically... It died on a grade. And so he shifted it into neutral, and we just coasted down for two miles and went off into a gas station and uh, luckily there was an auto parts store at that exit oh, <laughs> he was able to get an air filter and fix it but he wound up buying a place again this is one of those you don't take the climate into consideration he wound up buying a place that have got about 20 degree roofs which is not enough to shed snow without encouragement and because of that, he wound up getting these spectacular ice dams building up over the heated space and melting water, and then water would intrude through the seams in the roof and get into his attic, and he got indoor rain, and that first year he wound up having to replace his bathroom and several other walls in his house from water damage, which was a huge expense that he hadn't budgeted for. 
and it really caused him problems. And he and I went up on his roof to chip those ice dams loose, and we both almost got killed. Um, so what he needs to do, I don't know if he's done it yet, is he needs to apply strip heaters to the edge of the roof so that it melts the snow and gets it off before that water backs up. You run into problems like this. Uh, problems that nothing in the city would ever prepare you for. And um, making sure that you select the right equipment for the job, you pay attention to repairability and price point and the trade-offs between time and money, all very, very important. Here's another weird little random thing that um, I would that neither of us thought about before we moved to the country is how many pairs of gloves and how many pairs of boots and socks and socks and socks yeah when we lived in the city i was a hobbit i went barefoot everywhere i was allowed to go i loved being barefoot there was never a problem with it you know i mean occasionally there would be glass on the road but not very often and it was brilliant since we moved to the country i'm in shoes all the time i used to buy one pair of shoes every five years now i own four pairs of shoes and i have to swap one or two pairs out every year because the amount of wear i put on them and because waterproof Mm -hmm. is very rarely actually waterproof unless they're yep. rubber boots. Yep. So you have you have to worry about things like trench foot out in the country. You don't have to worry about that in the city. It's it's a weird idea. But in the country, you have to pay attention to your hands and your feet because your hands can freeze and get frostbite and your feet can rot in your shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially where you have a lot of rain or a lot of snow, um your clothing and your shoes and your gloves will get wet. And wet makes you cold. Yep. Even if it's not that cold outside. Yeah, even if it's not that cold outside. At any time it's below about 55 degrees and you're wet, you're in danger of freezing to death. And that, oh, that brings to the other other interesting thing that you have to keep in mind out here, which is disease risk. Because in the city... You've got disease risk from communicable uh, respiratory infections all the time. Easy. You've got running water, so no problem, right? You, you, you wash your hands a lot and whatnot, and you try. If you feel sick, you lay down for a few days, and it, it works okay. Out here, you're in constant contact with the dirt. And if you've got animals, you're in constant contact with feces and food and animal food and animals themselves, which carry diseases. And you have to be super careful about things like wounds. If you get a cut on your arm and it doesn't bleed a lot and you fall down into the dirt, you can literally be dead two days later from tetanus. Every time I get a cut, I, and my tetanus booster is current, but I'm still like, you know, you never know. Every time I get a cut, I do everything I can to make sure that fucker bleeds. Because when it bleeds, it washes the bacteria out. And then I immediately go dress the wound. Because if you don't, stuff can get into you that'll kill you. And and that um, reminds me of another thing. Hmm. You have to be prepared for extensive first aid, not yeah. um, not how to stop bleeding or how to do CPR before the ambulance comes. But like you have to be able to suture a wound. We have we have supplies to suture wounds. We have supplies to splint broken bones. We have heavyweight wound absorption pads. And tourniquets in case, for example, a chainsaw bucks at the wrong time and slices your leg open. We have emergency medications that you usually don't keep on hand in um, an urban urban or suburban environment yep. because you, you can go to a clinic. Yep. 
around here it's very common. You walk into the hospital and you say, okay, I'm 15 minutes away from medical assistance in the summer and two hours in the winter. I need whatever kind of emergency drugs would get me through a medical emergency. And they will prescribe them for you, and you will get them and you'll stockpile them. And now if you're going in all the time asking for opiates, they will obviously notice. But, uh, you know, they're, you know, Things like Cipro and um, and local anesthetics and whatnot, they're things that everybody keeps on hand, at least everybody who's doing heavy work. If you just live out here and you're, you're retired and you're not doing much heavy work, that's not a concern. But if you're building things, repairing things on the regular, working with animals, you got to have that stuff around. And if you're working with animals, you got to have it around for the animals, too. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, now that we're talking about animals, predators. Something else you don't have in the city. Around here, we have, uh, just on our land, we have a black bear and a cougar. And we have a moose that wanders through every once in a while. All of these things are things that will kill you. And you don't think of moose as, as a predator because they eat grass and leaves and, and that sort of thing. But they're huge and they are ornery and they will kill to defend Mm-hmm. And defend mean not just getting between a mother and her calf, but actually just eyeballing a male can get you killed. And we also have the Northwestern Timberwolf. Yes, uh, we are we are in the edges of the territory of... Of a very large wolf pack. Of, of a wolf pack. One of our friends is, lives right in the middle, and we've heard wolves when we were at his place at night. We haven't heard them here. We've mostly heard coyotes on occasion and a lot of local dogs. And I think that because we have a lot of local dogs... Yeah, it and... helps discourage. Yeah. But, uh, but the Northwestern Timberwolf, if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, you've seen how big the direwolves are. That's how big the Northwestern Timberwolf can get. It, a Northwestern Timberwolf male is about seven foot from nose to the base of the tail and can get upwards of 350 pounds. Around here, you have dogs for defense, but they will not defend against a wolf, <laughs> especially not a wolf pack. The dog will keep the coyotes away. It'll keep the bears away because bears do not like dogs. And basically, black bears especially are cowardly, oversized raccoons. There are special breeds that will be useful in protecting against an animal that large, but they... Um... They'll also kill people who come around your land, and that's not a good idea. And... The breed I'm thinking of, it's um, a Japanese bear hunting breed, uh -huh. whose name I forgot right now. They are very territorial, very aggressive, tend not to get along with other dogs that they aren't mated to. Mm -hmm. So you can get dogs that will protect you against a wolf pack, but they're kind of a pain in the ass to keep. But uh, it's been really fun. During the summer, you guys will have heard the dog going nuts in the background quite a few times. And uh, oddly, since the snow's come, she's been very quiet because the bear is hibernating. <laughs> the bear kept coming around camp, as they will anytime you've got, for example, a compost pile because they're large, oversized raccoons. Who will kill you if you annoy them the wrong they way? They are literally large, oversized raccoons. They're the same. Yeah, uh... the same clade. Um but uh, the dog kept that bear away, and we could tell. You know, the dog would go, whoo, run off into the bushes and start barking like a crazy animal, and we'd hear the bear lumbering away. Occasionally, she'd get the bear cornered, and we'd hear the bear growling at her, and we were like, are we going to still have a dog at the end of the day? <laughs> um, 
so far though she's been uh, she's been in, she's been good but yeah I wouldn't be out here without a dog especially not without a really territorial dog without a big dog we we know at least one person that is is out in the woods with like a poodle and oh. not a <laughs> not a standard poodle but they a you, toy poodle they're yeah. cute and all but they're 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 the third dog you get around here, not the first. Yeah. And if you've got livestock, what you have not you don't just have a free supply of eggs or a low cost supply of bacon. You've also got bait. Uh and and you have to have a dog, usually if you've got more than a few uh animals, you have to have a dog whose job it is to protect the livestock. Or you don't have livestock very long. Or a llama. Yeah. Which I suppose brings us to the last point in this episode, and we'll get to order of ops in, uh, in a minute here. Last point in this episode would be a lot of people who move out to parts rural from the cities have this grand delusion that you'll be self-sufficient. Um, you're going to grow your own food. Everything's going to be easy. That doesn't work. You hear a lot about food forests and permaculture, and what nobody thinks about is that the way nature works is that anytime there's an oversupply of calories, animals are going to come and take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your gardens have to be secured with barbed wire and mesh, or they have to be in a greenhouse. If you have fruit trees, well, what you, you don't have, unless you've got the orchard fenced off, when you have fruit trees, you don't have a ready supply of food. What you have is a great gathering place for deer. Mm. Um, and in most states, it's illegal to bait deer for uh-huh. um, for hunting, and it's also illegal to shoot them, except for in a certain period of the year and with um, exorbitant licensing fees. So, if you uh, if you're doing actual farming, security is actually your first concern. Soil fertility is important too, but it's kind of like the second order concern. No, it's not the second order concern. Yeah. If you don't have adequate soil fertility... Well, then you, it won't you, grow at all, but... Yeah. But middling soil fertility, you want to get the security taken care of first before you even worry about the soil, because otherwise you're just growing a salad bar for the local wildlife. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the deer. It's the rabbits and the squirrels and the groundhogs and the chipmunks. Anything that eats leaves will come and preferentially eat your leaves before they go and forage through the forest. So, anyway... That's a good first episode. Next time we'll talk about the importance of order op- order of operations when you're living out in parts rural, especially when you're doing big projects like building a home. We'll see you then. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. 
So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. 